0: Section 55 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1 The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 16 The Classical Renaissance by Sir Richard C. Jebb. Part 3 The incessant quest for manuscripts and the gradual formation of large libraries slowly improved the external facilities for humanistic study. Much progress was made in this respect during the interval between the death of Petrarch in 1374 and that of Politian in 1494. Yet, even in the latter part of the 15th century, good classical texts were far from abundant, It was only by the printing press that such books were made easily accessible to the majority of students. This fact must be remembered if we would understand the part played in Italy by the humanist professors. In the Italian revival, viewed as a whole, two principal agencies may be distinguished, corresponding with two successive stages of the movement. The first agency is that of oral teaching by a scholar of eminence, who addresses large audiences including persons of various ages and attainments such a lecturer did not as a rule confine his labors to any one place but accepted invitations from several cities in succession this method of teaching began immediately after petrarch in the earlier days of humanism it was a necessity there was no other way in which the first elements of the new learning could be diffused. Such a lecturer as Manuel Crisoloras, or Giovanni di Conversino, appealed to an enthusiasm which was still in its youth. By such men, the seeds of humanism were sown far and wide. But meanwhile, another agency was coming into existence, better fitted, in some respects, to promote the higher humanism. It was that of private groups or coterie formed by patrons and students of letters who held meetings for the purpose of learned converse and discussion in contrast with the influence of the humanist professor who often changed his abode such an academy was a permanent centre of study in the place where it was formed in contrast with the professor's large and miscellaneous audience the members of an academy were limited in number and carefully selected, and while the lecturer was usually constrained to adopt a more or less popular mode of treatment, the work of an academy was more esoteric. Among the humanist professors, none were more eminent or successful in their day than Filelfo and Politian. Each is a representative man. Filelfo is a type of the wandering humanist who played so conspicuous a part in the first half of the fifteenth century politian in the latter part of that century represents the public teaching of the classics in a riper phase with him indeed it reached the highest level to which italy ever saw it lifted by the union of learning with genius the zenith of filelfo's reputation may be placed at the time in fourteen twenty nine when after teaching at venice and bologna he came as professor to florence we have already seen that after studying greek at constantinople he had brought home with him a considerable store of classical manuscripts he especially prided himself on a comprehensive knowledge of the greek and latin literatures and on his facility in using both languages alike in prose and in verse at florence for a time at least he often gave four lectures a day taking for instance cicero and homer in the morning followed by terence and Thucydides in the afternoon my audience he says numbers every day four hundred persons perhaps more or perhaps less for his own later recollections reduced the estimate by one-half at any rate the attendance was very large there were youths some from france germany spain cyprus but also middle-aged or elderly men including the foremost in florence this state of things did not indeed last long for filelfo had a fatal knack of rousing enmities but it is a good illustration of what was possible for a very eminent humanist at that period the method of teaching was determined by the peculiar conditions Among Filelfo's large audience, there would be many, possibly a majority, who would regard the lecture mainly as a display of Latin eloquence, and who would not attempt to take notes. But there would also be many serious students, intent on recording what the lecturer said, and of these, only a few would possess manuscripts of the author, Cicero, for example, whom he was expounding. After an introduction, Filalfo would, therefore, dictate a portion of Cicero's text which the students would transcribe. To this he would add a commentary, dealing with grammar, with the usage of words, and with everything in the subject matter which needed to be explained or illustrated. Thus, at the end of such a course, the lecturer would have dictated a fully annotated edition of the classical book or portion of a book which he was treating and the diligent student would have transcribed it. The migratory habits of the earlier humanists are partly to be explained by the fact that when a lecturer had exhausted his existing stock of annotated texts, a change of scene and of audience would enable him to use them over again. A lecture by such a man as Filelfo had, in fact, a twofold quality. On the one hand, it was an exposition not of an advanced character, judged by modern standards, yet not too elementary for the conditions of the time. On the other, it was a recognized opportunity for the display of oratorical and dialectical skill. The audience were prepared for flashes of lively eloquence, quotations, epigrams, strokes of satire, panegyric or invective. As scholarship advanced in Italy, The humanistic lecture became more sparing of irrelevant ornament, but it always preserved something of its old rhetorical character. Angelo Ambrugini, called Poliziano, Polizianus, from his birthplace, Montepulciano, was born in 1454. His precocious abilities were shown in boyhood. In 1470, he earned the designation of Homericus Juvenis, by translating four books of the iliad two to five into latin at eighteen he published an edition of catullus he attracted the notice of lorenzo de medici who made him tutor to his children before he was thirty he became professor of greek and latin at florence he held that chair till his death in fourteen ninety four at the age of forty like politian covered in his lectures a wide field of literature in both the classical languages but his standard of scholarship best exemplified in his edition of the pandects was higher and more critical than that of any predecessor a quality which distinguished him not less than his comprehensive scholarship was his rhetorical genius its characteristics were spontaneity swiftness fire with a certain copiousness of matter poured forth from a rich and prompt memory this indeed even more than his learning was the gift to which he owed his unique fame with his contemporaries a vivid idea of his power as a rhetorician which also helps us to imagine him as a lecturer is given by four latin poems comprised in his Silvae each of these poems was written in order that he might recite it in his lecture-room as a prelude to a course of lectures the first piece entitled nutricia is an outline of the history of poetry from homer to boccaccio with a peroration in praise of lorenzo de medici it may justly be called one of the most noteworthy products of the italian renaissance the facility and rapidity of the sonorous hexameters are extraordinary Holitian is said to have been in all styles a swift composer and these verses convince the reader that they flowed forth the matter is scarcely less remarkable we observe that this great humanist is far more at home with the latin poets than with the greek thus though no less than twenty-seven verses are given to pindar these turn wholly on the ancient traditions about his life there is not a word that proves knowledge of his work or insight into his genius the three masters of greek tragedy are dismissed with one verse apiece purporting to tell how each was killed aeschylus by a tortoise falling on his head sophocles by a shock of joy at the success of a play and euripides by wild dogs in macedon this brief passage is quaintly significant of the scant attention given to the attic drama in the fifteenth century but nothing in the poem is truer to the feeling of italian humanism or better indicates one of its limitations on the critical side than the estimate of homer and virgil virgil says politian ranks next to homer or were not homer the elder might even rank above him veneranda senectis obstiterit fortasse prior the second poem of the sylvae called rusticus was an introduction to the author's lectures on hesiod's works and days virgil's eclogues and georgics and other bucolic poetry the third manto was a brilliant eulogy on virgil the fourth ambra was prefatory to lectures on homer politian's italian lyrics have been deemed by competent critics to possess high poetical merit entitling him to a place between petrarch and ariosto his latin verse brilliant as it is in rhetorical quality wants the tact in selection of topics and the artistic finish which belong to poetry but it is easy to conceive how powerful must have been the effect of those impetuous hexameters when politian who was skilled in elocution and gifted with a voice of much charm declaimed them in his crowded lecture-room at florence as a proem to discourses full of eloquence and learning his audience was cosmopolitan and the fame of his teaching was borne to every country in europe politian's work was cut short by death at an age when most men of comparable eminence in the annals of scholarship have been only at the outset of their career but his function was to inspire and his gifts were such that his brief span of life sufficed to render him one of the most influential personalities in the history of italian humanism the teaching by public lecture of which filelfo and politian were such distinguished exponents gave occupation throughout the fifteenth century to a long series of able men it flourished at almost every considerable centre of italian life and from the second quarter of the century onwards the humanist professor had found an efficient ally in the schoolmaster who prepared the ground for him the italian renaissance brought forth no fairer fruit and none fraught with more important consequences for the liberal culture of the world than the school training based on the ideas of humanism which took shape at that period a place of special honour in the history of education is due to the founder of that system vittorino da feltre born in thirteen seventy eight at feltre a small town of venezia he went at eighteen to the university of padua then second in italy only to the university of bologna and sharing with pavia the distinction still rare at that time in universities of being comparatively favorable to the new learning at padua vittorino was the pupil of giovanni di conversino and afterwards of gasparino da barzizza scholars whose important services to the study of latin have already been noticed another paduan teacher of that day whose influence vittorino doubtless felt was vergerius the author of an essay on the formation of character de ingenuis moribus which remained a classic for two centuries passing through some forty editions before the year sixteen hundred the renaissance was fertile in educational treatises but this tractate was the clearest as it was the earliest statement of the principles on which humanistic training rested vittorino after holding a chair of rhetoric at padua and then teaching privately at venice was invited by Gianfrancesco Gonzaga, Marquis of Mantua, to undertake the tuition of his children. In 1425, he took up his residence in a villa assigned to him for that purpose at Mantua, where he remained till his death in 1446. Here he created a school of a type previously unknown. His aim was to develop the whole nature of his pupils, intellectual, moral and physical not with a view to any special calling but so as to form good citizens and useful members of society capable of bearing their part with credit in public and private life for intellectual training he took the latin classics as a basis teaching them however not in the dry and meagre fashion generally prevalent in the medieval schools Where their meaning as literature was too often obscured by artificial and pedantic methods, but in the large and generous spirit of Renaissance humanism. Poetry, oratory, Roman history, and the ethics of Roman Stoicism were studied in the best Latin writers, and in a way fitted to interest and stimulate boys. By degrees, Vittorino introduced some Greek classics also. The scholars were practiced in Latin composition, and to some extent in Greek, also in recitation and in reading aloud. He further provided for some teaching of mathematics, including geometry, a subject which the humanists preferred to the schoolman's logic, arithmetic, and the elements of astronomy. Nor did he neglect the rudiments of such knowledge as then passed for natural philosophy and natural history. Music and singing also found a place. Unlike some of the contemporary humanists, Vittorino was an orthodox, even a devout, churchman, and one whose precepts were enforced by his practice. He was a layman, and the type of education which he was creating might even be contrasted in some respects with the ecclesiastical type which had preceded it but he was entirely exempt from any tendency to neo-paganism in religion or ethics and his ethical influence as a teacher seems to have been thoroughly sound with great insight and tact vittorino saw how far social education could be given in a school with advantage to morals and without loss to manliness he inculcated a good tone of manners and encouraged the acquirement of such social accomplishments as the age demanded in well-educated men. As to physical training, he provided instructors in riding, swimming, and military exercises. He also promoted every kind of healthy outdoor activity. This was a new thing in schools. The ecclesiastical schoolmaster of the Middle Ages had not usually concerned himself with it, the medieval provision for physical training had been chiefly in the households of princes or nobles where horsemanship hunting and martial sports were in vogue vittorino was in some sort continuing this old training many of his pupils were young nobles destined to the life of courts and camps but his point of view was a novel one the idea which dominated his whole system was the classical, primarily Greek, idea of an education in which mind and body should be harmoniously developed. The force with which this idea appealed to the humanists was partly due to its contrast with medieval theory and practice. The new type of school education developed by Vittorino is rightly called humanistic, but the reason for so calling it is not solely or chiefly that the intellectual part of it was based on the greek and latin classics it was humanistic in a deeper sense because it was at once intellectual moral and physical vittorino was resolved that the advantages of his school should be open to all boys who were fitted to profit by them pupils were sent to him from several of the italian courts to be educated with the young mantuan princes but he also maintained at his own cost a large number of poorer scholars for whom lodgings were found near the villa the rules of life and study were the same for all many of the most distinguished scholars of the century had enjoyed his teaching among these were george of trebizond valla Nicholas perotti and john bishop of aleria who prepared for the Roman press in 1469-71 to the Ediciones Principes of many Latin classics. Next to Vittorino must be named the other great schoolmaster of the time, his contemporary and friend Guarino da Verona. Guarino, after studying Latin under Giovanni de Conversino, had learned Greek at Constantinople, where, for five years, he lived in the house of Manuel Crisoloras. 1403-8. to eight. No other Italian of that day was probably Guarino's equal as a Greek scholar. Filelfo and Aurispa were indeed the only contemporary Italians who shared his facility in speaking and writing Greek. It was in 1414 that Guarino opened at Venice the first humanistic school which had been established in that city. Vittorino studied Greek with him there for a year and a half in fourteen eighteen guarino finally left venice he was subsequently invited by niccolo d'este marquis of ferrara to undertake the education of his son and heir leonello after the early death of leonello a youth of great promise guarino remained at ferrara where he enjoyed the highest repute as a teacher drawing pupils from all parts of italy He died there in fourteen sixty aged ninety thus before the middle of the fifteenth century school and lecture-room had diffused the influences of humanism throughout italy the spirit of humanistic study had given a new bent to the intellectual interests of cultivated society and had become a potent factor in the education of youth in all the principal cities there were men who found themselves drawn together by a common taste for ancient literature and art the time was ripe for raising the new studies to a somewhat higher level by the exercise of a keener criticism such as is generated by the play of mind upon mind within a limited social circle to which the only passport is a recognized standard of attainment or genius the age of academies was at hand florence the metropolis of humanism was the place where the earliest of such societies arose we have seen that the visit of gemistos plethon in fourteen thirty eight had stimulated the florentine study of plato and had impelled cosmo de medici to found his platonic academy but the palmy days of that institution were rather in the time of his grandson, Lorenzo de' Medici, who became head of the state in 1469 and died in 1492. Lorenzo was remarkable for versatility even among the men of the Renaissance. Few can ever have been more brilliantly qualified, by natural abilities and by varied accomplishments, to adorn the part of a messinus the platonic academy usually met in his palace at florence or in his villa on the heights of fiesole only a few members of the society can be named here platonic studies were more especially represented by marsilio ficino who had given a great impulse to them though he had no critical comprehension of plato giovanni picco della mirandola brought to lorenzo's circle those varied gifts of mind and character which so strongly impressed his contemporaries a keen interest in ancient philosophy and a desire to harmonize it with christian doctrine were distinctive of him he was destined to die at the age of thirty-one in fourteen ninety-four leo battista alberti architect musician painter an excellent writer in both latin and italian contributed an example of versatile power almost comparable to that of leonardo da vinci there too was michelangelo already a poet but with his greatest artistic achievements still before him scholarship had several representatives foremost among them was politian who has commemorated in latin verse the gatherings at his patron's villa another was cristoforo landino an able latinist the author of some dialogues on the model of cicero's tosculans which aid us in imagining the kind of discourse to which the meetings of the academy gave rise these are the well-known disputationes camaldunenses, so-called because the conversations are supposed to take place at a house of the Camaldolite order in the Apennines. Landino introduces us to Lorenzo de' Medici and a party of his friends, who have sought refuge there from the summer heat of Florence. The conversation turns on the merits of that active life which they have left behind them in the fair city, on the Arno, as compared with the contemplative life of the philosopher or the monk alberti argues in favor of the contemplative existence lorenzo of the active and their hearers pronounce the opinion that both must contribute to form the complete man so passes their first evening among the hills on three following days the friends discourse of virgil humanists though they are they cling as petrarch did to the faith that his poetry is allegorical and in the veiled meanings which underlie it they discover links with platonic doctrine landino's work in these imaginary conversations must be accepted as true to the general tendency and tone of the circle which he knew so well it should be added that the cult of plato by the florentine academy included certain ceremonial observances they kept his birthday with a banquet after which some portion of his works was read and discussed The anniversary of his death had also its fitting commemoration. His bust was crowned with flowers, and a lamp was burned before it. Such things which may seem childish now were outward signs of the strong and fresh reality which the memory of the illustrious ancients had for the men of the Renaissance, the heirs of the Middle Age, who had not wholly broken, even yet, with its feelings and impulses rome too had its academy this was founded about fourteen sixty by julius pomponius laetus an enthusiast for latin scholarship in which valla had been his master it was the peculiar ambition of laetus to imitate as closely as possible the manners occupations and even amusements of the ancients The academy, founded by him, devoted itself especially to the study of Latin antiquities. Its members also followed his bent by celebrating the Palilia on the legendary birthday of Rome, by acting comedies of Plautus, and generally by raising, among themselves, such a phantom as they could of ancient life. It is not altogether surprising that a pope devoid of humanistic sympathies should have regarded such a society with disapproval the roman academy was temporarily suppressed by paul the second but it was revived under sixtus the fourth and lived on into the age of leo X when it greatly flourished among its members at that later period were three of the eminent latin scholars who became cardinals bembo sadoletto and Egidio Canisio, also the sparkling historian and biographer Paulus Jovius. It could claim also that brilliant ornament of Leo's court, Baldassare Castiglione, the author of the Corteggiano, and himself a mirror of the accomplishments which he describes. The Academy of Naples differed in stamp both from the Florentine and from the Roman alfonso v of aragon who made himself master of naples in fourteen forty two had drawn a number of distinguished scholars to his court in that city after his death in fourteen fifty eight there was no longer a centre at naples round which such men could gather then it was that jovianus pontanus an excellent writer of latin and especially of latin verse developed an academy out of what had previously been an informal society of scholarly friends the distinctive note of the neapolitan academy continued to be that which it derived from its origin it was occupied more especially with the cultivation of style the activity distinctive of it is represented by a series of latin versifiers remarkable for scholarship for vigor and also for a neo-pagan tendency the florentine academy was predominantly philosophic the roman was antiquarian the neapolitan was literary many similar societies of more or less note arose in other italian cities at the close of the fifteenth century almost every considerable centre of culture possessed its academy the manner in which these institutions contributed to the advancement of scholarship and learning was somewhat different from that associated with more modern bodies of a similar nature the italian academies of the renaissance had little to show in the way of transactions or memoirs which could be regarded as permanently valuable contributions to special branches of knowledge but the variety and brilliancy of the men whom these societies are known to have brought into sympathetic converse would suffice to establish the importance of the movement. Such academies raised the classical Renaissance to a higher level. Cooperation of the academic kind bore a necessary part in that great work which crowned the labors of the Italian revival by securing the Greek and Latin classics against the accidents of time. Aldo Manuzio was aided in the affairs of his press by the new academy, Nea academia which he founded at venice in order justly to estimate his achievement we must recall what had been done in the same field before him italy was the country where the recently invented art of printing first became largely fruitful in the service of letters in the benedictine house of santa Scolastica at subiaco the German printers Schwinheim and Panarts printed in fourteen sixty five the first edition of Lactantius, removing to Rome in fourteen sixty seven They began to issue the Latin classics in fourteen sixty nine Their press produced Caesar Livy, Aulus Gellius, Virgil, and Lucan, which were shortly followed by Cicero's letters with a volume of his orations and by ovid some twenty-three latin authors were published by them in little more than two years at about the same time printing was begun at venice by john of spire and by a frenchman nicolas jensen they too sent forth many latin authors milan seems to have had a press as early as fourteen sixty nine at florence in fourteen seventy one bernardo cennini printed the commentary of servius on virgil's eclogues another florentine printing-house was that of junta afterwards famed for the ediciones iuntine the printing of greek began not long after the first entrance of the art into italy in fourteen seventy six the greek grammar of constantine lascaris was printed at milan by at Milan, Theocritus, Idylls 1 to 18, and Hesiod, Works and Days, came from the press in or about 1481, and Isocrates, edited by Demetrius Chalcondylas, in 1493. Venice contributed in 1484 the Greek grammar, Erotemata, of Manuel Crisoloras. At Florence in 1488, Lorenzo Alopa, a Venetian, published a Homer, edited by Chalcondelas. Such was the general situation when Aldo commenced his labors. Most of the greater Latin classics had been printed, but of the Greek, only Homer, Hesiod's Works and Days, Eighteen Idylls of Theocritus and Isocrates. Teobaldo Manucci, who Latinized his name into Aldus Manutius, and is now more usually called aldo manuzio was born in fourteen fifty his aim in youth was to qualify himself for the profession of a humanist he studied greek at ferrara under guarino da verona to whom he afterwards inscribed his theocritus at rome gasparino da verona was his master in latin aldo became tutor to the young princes of carpi alberto and lionello pio nephews of his old fellow-student the brilliant pico della mirandola but he had now formed the great design of printing all the masterpieces of greek literature and on that project all his thoughts were intent he was supplied with the means of executing it by his pupil alberto pio to whom as toton onton Erasti, he dedicated the editio princeps of aristotle in 1490, he settled at Venice, in a house near the church of San Agostino, and entered upon preparations for his task. A Cretan, Marcus Musurus, was the most important of his assistants. The handwriting of Musurus was the pattern from which Aldo's Greek type was cast, as in a later day, Porson's hand supplied a model to the Cambridge Press. It is noteworthy that another Cretan, Demetrius, had designed the types used by Alopa in the Florentine Homer of 1488. Many of Aldo's compositors were likewise Cretans. His printing establishment at Venice was a Greek-speaking household. There was a separate department for binding books. The printing ink was made in the house. The excellent paper came from the mills of Fabriano, in fourteen ninety three aldo began his series of greek editions with the hero and leander of Museus, whom as appears from the preface he identified with the pre-homeric bard of legend thenceforward aldo's work was prosecuted with steady vigour though not without some enforced interruptions the whole of hesiod with theocritus 30 Idylls, Theognis, and some other gnomic poetry, came out in 1495. Aristotle in five volumes appeared in the years 1495 to 8. Nine plays of Aristophanes were issued in 1498. The year 1502 produced Thucydides, Sophocles, and Herodotus. In 1503 came Xenophon's Hellenica, and Euripides. In 1504, Demosthenes. In 1508, Lysias and other orators. In 1509, parts of Plutarch. The year 1513 was signalized by the Editio princeps of Plato, dedicated to Leo X. In 1514, Pindar was sent forth, also Hesychius and Athenius when aldo died in fifteen fifteen he had produced twenty-eight edizioni principes of greek and latin classics within the space of some twenty-two years and these editions were of a merit hitherto unequalled pains had been taken with the collation of manuscripts and with criticism of the text and in this respect many of the books though they may fail to satisfy the modern standard were superior to any that had preceded them the printing was of much beauty and the small form of the volumes was a welcome boon in an age accustomed to folios or quartos but the most important benefit was the extraordinary cheapness of these editions the price of an aldine volume ranged from about a shilling to half a crown of our money It was not without many difficulties and discouragements that such a result had been attained. Aldo suffered from the jealousy of rival printers and the frauds of piratical booksellers. On four occasions, he writes in 1501, the persons in his employment had caballed against him, with the aim of making larger gains at his expense. Then the work of his press was twice stopped by war, first in 1506 and again in 1510-15, to but Aldo was sustained by a sober enthusiasm. He must also have been cheered by the sympathy of the Hellenists whom he had drawn around him. His Neacademia was formed at Venice at 1500. Its rules were drawn up in Greek, and that language was spoken at its meetings the secretary of the society was cipione fortighera the author of a once famous essay in praise of greek letters who greekized his name as carteromachus an example which the other members of the body followed the eminent scholar john Lascaris was one of several distinguished greeks resident in italy who joined aldo's academy among the subjects with which the neacademia occupied itself was the choice of books to be printed the collation of manuscripts and the discussion of various readings some of the members assisted aldo as editors of particular classics it was in order to see a new edition of his own adagia through the press that erasmus became a guest under aldo's roof in 1508 he has described how he sat in the same room with his host revising the book while aldo and his proofreader seraphinus pushed forward the printing erasmus became as was natural an honorary member of the neacademia academia that distinction was also enjoyed by an englishman who had studied humane letters under politian thomas linacre aldo's academy thus stands out among kindred institutions of the italian renaissance as a body actively associated with a definite work on a grand scale, the printing of the classics. After Aldo's death in 1515, the business of the press was carried on by his brothers-in-law and partners, the Asolani, and then by his son, Paolo Manuzio, and his grandson, Aldo the Younger. The series of Greek classics was continued with Pausanias, Strabo, Aeschylus, Galen, hippocrates and longinus when aeschylus had appeared in fifteen eighteen no extant greek classic of the first rank remained unprinted aldo was not only one of the greatest of all benefactors to literature but also a man whose disinterested ardor and generous character compel admiration alluding to the device on his title pages the dolphin and the anchor Symbols of speed and tenacity, with the motto, Festina lente, he said in 1499, quote, I have achieved much by patience, cuntando, and I work without pause. End quote. The energy, knowing neither haste nor rest, which carried him to his goal, was inspired by the same feeling which, in the dawn of the Renaissance, had animated Petrarch and Boccaccio those pioneers when they ransacked libraries for manuscripts felt as if they were liberating the master spirits of old from captivity so does aldo exult in one of his prefaces at the thought that he has delivered the classics from bondage to quote the burriers of books end quote the misers of bibliography who hid their treasures from the light and no one was more liberal than aldo to all who worked with him or who sought his aid at the time when his task was advancing towards completion greek learning had already begun to decline in italy and the last period of the italian renaissance had set in that period may be roughly dated from the year fourteen ninety four and the end or beginning of the end is marked by the sack of rome in fifteen twenty seven it was in fourteen ninety four that charles the eighth of france marched on naples he conquered it easily but lost it again after his withdrawal a time of turmoil ensued in italy which became the battle-ground where foreign princes fought out their feuds the medici were driven from florence which thereupon was rent by the struggle between the piagnoni and the Ottimati naples was acquired in 1504 by ferdinand of aragon milan was harassed by the passage of french swiss and german armies almost everywhere italy lay downtrodden under the contending invaders only a few of the smaller principalities such as ferrara and mantua retained any vigorous or independent life rome meanwhile was wealthy and still untroubled by war the papacy was now the chief italian power in the peninsula it was at rome therefore that humanistic culture held its central seat in this closing period of the italian renaissance erasmus was there in 1509 when cardinal grimani pressed him to make rome his permanent abode and he has recorded his impressions he saw a bright and glorious city, an opulent treasure house of literature and art, the metropolis of polite society, refined luxury, and learned intercourse. Nor was this merely the estimate of a northern visitor. A similar view of Rome brought consolation to contemporary Italians. The Poetica of Marco Vida, 1489 to 1566 ends with a panegyric on leo x in which he laments indeed that italy has become a prey to quote foreign tyrants the fortune of arms has forsaken her but may she still excel he cries in the studies of minerva and may rome peerless in beauty still teach the nations the claim which virgil made immortal is reversed by vida Let others wield the sword and bear rule, but let Rome be supreme in letters and in arts. End of section 55. Recording by Linda Johnson.